0: Welcome to Financial Frameworks, where the goal is to help you increase your financial decision-making skills, building on what you already know. In my previous podcast, I told you that I am narrowing Financial Frameworks focus to two topics, value investing and recent research in behavioral finance regarding learning processes that you can use and apply immediately. I want to take a moment to note here that much of the recent research in behavioral finance teaches us how to avoid mistakes in investing. I mention it in respect to the accomplishments, the thinking, and teachings of Charlie Munger. Mr. Munger's penetrating insights will be greatly missed, as will he. A significant contribution to the field of value investing has been his long-time insistence that solid investing rested more on avoiding mistakes than on being smart. In his own words, it is remarkable how much long-term advantage people like us have gotten by trying to be consistently not stupid, instead of trying to be very intelligent. Charlie Munger, 2018. A lot of what Financial Frameworks podcasts and blogs will focus on follows Charlie Munger's dictums, to minimize mental mistakes. He would often focus on what could go wrong in an investment first. For the next several podcasts and blogs, I will explore what are, for me, the four hardest tasks in value investing and tackle the first of those four during this podcast. Before going into the four hardest tasks, let me clarify what I mean by value investing. I mean looking at things like earnings growth, balance sheet condition, an assessment of management, and other fundamental financial and market data that relate to the business or the stock that one is examining, while you and I are searching for, finding, and pricing undervalued stocks. With that said, let's get on to the Ford Hardest Tasks. The point here is to go through them in greater detail to provide you With a better feel for what is most important, both clinically and in your own value system, what is most important to focus on when making investment decisions and when building your investment methodology. Financial frameworks exist to connect the high level concepts down to specific actions you can take to develop a set of investing strategies and frameworks that you own, that you can rely on under any conditions. So here are my four hardest tasks, and then we will tackle the first one, margin of safety. Number one, doing sufficient homework to be clear about a margin of safety when pricing an investment. When has one done enough homework? It could go on forever, or for most people, it's done too quickly. So what's the right amount? Number two, trusting your own judgment when information is conflicting and experts are providing contradictory or unclear advice when the markets are choppy or challenging. How do you trust your own judgment? Number three, knowing when you have enough of the critical information to say yes to an investment. This is different than homework. You now have gotten to the point where you have gathered all the information. You're confident about that, but there still will be information gaps There will be things missing, you'd like more information, but you need to make a decision. Number four, passing on something that is close but doesn't quite measure up. Again, going back to Charlie Munger, he often said that he looked at 100 to 200, sometimes more opportunities before he picked one. He said no a lot more than he said yes. So those are the four hardest tasks that we will work our way through here at Financial Frameworks. With regard to the format of this podcast, if you find questions and answers, that approach to analyzing material useful, you will find this podcast to your liking. Usually when I'm analyzing something, I have a conversation with myself and with others that is a series of questions that often produce some of the information I need, but it always leads to additional questions. More details are needed. That generate the next set of questions. So that is what this podcast will do. We'll go back and forth as we dig deeper. Specifically, today's podcast covers four things. One, defining the margin of safety and how to start the research process. Two, examples, three proven and well-known examples of how to measure margin of safety. Number three, a problem for you to look at, consider, and to apply to your own investing methodology. And finally, I will conclude with some comments and talk about what we'll do in the next podcast. Defining and using margin of safety. Using our question and answer approach, my first two questions are, one, what is the margin of safety or how do I define it so that I can apply it? And two, where and how do I start looking when I want an investment that will not lose money before I want to sell it? that is the point of margin of safety. Here's a very non-technical definition of margin of safety from Warren Buffett. I picked it because it should print a clear picture in your mind of how to think and feel about margin of safety when you're investing. Buffett, you have to have the knowledge to enable you to make a very general estimate about the value of the underlying business, but you do not cut it close. That is what Ben Graham meant by having a margin of safety. You don't try to buy a business worth $83 million for $80 million. You leave yourself an enormous margin. When you build a bridge, you insist it can carry 30,000 pounds, but you only drive 10,000-pound trucks over it. That same principle works in investing. That quotation is taken from an article, The Super Investors of Graham and Doddsville, in the Columbia Business School magazine, Hermes, published in 1984. Now we'll move on to the second question where and how do i start looking for me it is to turn the definition into a set of criteria that i can use to measure things criteria must enable me to make a yes no goodbye or not a goodbye or up or down decision they have to be very clear so i start with three things then try to figure out which one or which combination give me the desired cushion the three things are number 1 look at current assets versus liabilities The sum of current assets, cash, securities, solid receivables, need to be significantly greater than a company's liabilities. Two, what are the current earnings? Are they consistent? Are they not likely to drop in the near future? Do they require new investments? And have they been steadily growing in the recent past? Number three, a competitive advantage. A company can have a margin of safety that protects its profits, either with a process like Walmart's distribution system, or a brand like Coca-Cola, or Peter Lynch's example of Bandag tire retreading, or it can have a size advantage. Coca-Cola is a good example. Again, Amazon's a good example. These are competitive advantages that will enable a company to outperform their competition. Now that we have the criterion in place. The next question is where do I find information about good companies that I can apply my criteria to? The short answer to this question has two parts. First, using what you already know about products and services that you consume or you're aware of or you know people who work for the companies, you identify companies that you think are worth exploring and you create a list of candidates. The leads are everywhere. Stores that you shop in, the internet, Pages like Yahoo Finance, conversations you have with other people whose judgment you trust, maybe discussions that you have with others who are looking at stocks. There's always advertisements. You will receive a boatload of those, but 95% of them, their motivation is to sell you something, not to cause you to make money, but to cause themselves to make money. So those are discounted, but they're still there, and they shouldn't be ignored. The first one I mentioned, stores you shop in, brings to mind Peter Lynch, the famed Magellan mutual fund investor who averaged over 29% during his 13-year career. He mentioned that paying attention to what his family members were buying were good clues to products and companies. So they would be shopping for things to purchase while he would go with them and look for the companies who made them. Were their sales growing? Were their stores busy? Did they have a good product that was going to sell over and over again? All of these things are right in front of you. And so instead of just looking at purchases, look at the companies that produce your purchases. Second step after developing leads from your everyday experiences or your reading is to find out if the companies are doing well and if they're safe by studying their financial data. Two of the three items I mentioned earlier assets versus liabilities and current earnings, that will be in their financial statements. Competitive advantage takes a little more work to figure out. When I'm looking for financial data, I use resources available on the Internet or my local library. Using the Internet, I will go directly to the company that I'm interested in, usually on the company's investor relations section on their website. Most companies, Apple, for example, or Berkshire Hathaway, they have a lot of information there and it's pretty straightforward in their quarterly and their annual filings, their 10Qs and their 10Ks. My other primary resource is the local library that has a subscription to ValueLine. Value line is a financial information service that only provides research and information regarding publicly traded stocks. doesn't do anything else, doesn't try to sell anything else, so there's no conflict of interest. Value line information is reliable, it's detailed, it's current, it's summarized for quick analysis. And from my perspective, it's unbiased. That is important to me because I always consider an information source's motivation when it's telling me something. Are they trying to sell me something? Is there any inherent conflict? Would their uh, opinion about a stock be biased because it's one of their holdings? Value line's lack of bias is an important quality that to me increases their value. So that's the approach for a broad initial screening process when you plan on doing all the work yourself. There is a big advantage to doing it yourself, and that is that you will learn a lot more. By putting the time in, by stumbling around, by looking for things that aren't there, and then finding something else, and then circling back to your original focus, you learn an immense amount. It's an associative and an intuitive as well as a logical process. You will learn a lot about stocks and and just as importantly, you'll learn a lot about how you think about the stocks and the research and your values. However, it is slower and it is more labor intensive. Another approach, and it could be a hybrid approach, is to find a resource that will apply criteria like the three I outlined for you and pay that service. It's usually a subscription to do some screening or legwork for you. You can take your criteria. You can find something like the American Association of Independent Investors. They will do screenings along a number of lines. You can pick one or two and say, okay, how close is this to the way I look at things? And have them do some initial work and then work off of stocks that they have already selected to meet some of your criteria. That's not a bad hybrid. However, for the rest of this podcast, I will assume that you're doing your own research. Now, I will provide you with three examples of different ways to measure margin of safety for the purpose of showing you that there are many ways to do this. For example, Benjamin Graham, who is considered to be the father of margin of safety, believed that if the current assets of a company were greater than all the liabilities on a company's balance sheet, that was a solid margin of safety. Many people use that perspective. I'll spend some time on it a little later. Warren Buffett has stated that he uses the discounted cash flow method to estimate future earnings and produce a margin of safety for his investment that is based on the stock's future earnings being greater and producing a higher market price than the current market price of the stock. He wants a wide margin between the preferred price and the stock's current market price. Now, onto our three models. Benjamin Graham, I will outline Dr. Bruce Greenwald from Columbia University's method, and then the method used by the Bow Post Group in Boston, Massachusetts. They're very different. Benjamin Graham. The clearest and most succinct definition of Benjamin Graham's margin of safety definition, it's called net-net because you're producing a net asset result, comes from Investopedia. Quote, net-net investing focuses on current assets taking cash and cash equivalents at full value, then reducing accounts receivable for doubtful accounts, reducing inventories to liquidation values, and then calculating the net net by deducting total liabilities from this adjusted current assets number. Doing the math for this assessment is pretty straightforward, but it does require some judgment regarding valuing accounts receivable. I recommend you use a company's financial statements as your primary sources, and then you will find services on the internet that say, well, you should use 80% of receivables, or 50%, or 40%, usually based on an industry average. So that's not complicated. You also should be aware that the underlying assumption of this net-net strategy is that a business's assets are what will generate future revenues for the company you may not agree with that approach. That's a very conservative approach. The ability to generate revenues is the true value of the company. Think about whether you agree with that for a minute or two. Should the value of the company be based on current assets or do you want to include some other things? The second example I have for you is from Professor Bruce Greenwald and he takes a more detailed look at assets and earnings. He builds on Benjamin Graham's concern for safety by dividing the plus side of a company's finances into three separate categories. He looks at a company by separating and analyzing, one, its assets, two, its current earnings, and three, its future earnings in three separate processes. His method for analyzing the company's assets is similar to Graham's, more pluses than minuses on the asset side. Number two, when calculating current earnings, Professor Greenwald defines them as sustainable earnings in relation to the costs that produce those earnings. In other words, he's looking for earnings that are consistent, but he also looks at what it costs to produce those earnings and asks questions about whether the costs will change. He looks at projecting future earnings growth In a similar fashion, but he separates it because we're now looking into the future and we're projecting. We don't have historical or current data. He will spend more time on the costs associated with creating growing earnings than most of us usually do. And again, that's consistent with Charlie Munger. What could happen with costs in the future that I'm not thinking about now and let me look at it from multiple angles? Because each of these three categories that Professor Greenwald uses may contain elements of safety, let's look at each of them in a little more detail. Greenwald defines margin of safety for assets and current earnings, two of the three legs of our stool, in this way, quote, since we are primarily looking at equity investments, it is natural to think of a margin of safety as the difference between the estimated value of a firm's equity parentheses triangulating between earnings power and asset values, close parentheses, and the firm's market capitalization, which is the cost of buying the company's outstanding stock at its market price. But we could equally well look at a margin of safety in buying the firm's ongoing enterprise. The value of that enterprise is measured by its earnings power value, parentheses, sustainable earnings divided by cost of capital, close parentheses, on the one hand, and the net asset value associated with the core enterprise on the other. So again, he's divided it into assets versus earnings, and each one of them may contain a margin of safety. I have produced two previous podcasts, Podcast 30 and 31 for Financial Frameworks, which you can find on finframeworks.com or on Podbeam or Spotify or Apple Podcasts. And I will provide more information that goes into greater detail regarding Professor Greenwald's methods, but not here because the time and detail needed to do them justice is much greater than the time allotted for this podcast. For this podcast, the larger point is that Professor Greenwald uses both assets and earnings to make his assessment of margin of safety. The third leg of Professor Greenwald's model is estimating future growth in earnings separately and differently from estimating current earnings. Professor Greenwald suggests a number of lenses for assessing future earnings growth by first assuming that they will cost something and that a dollar earned in the future has to repay what it will cost to get that dollar of earnings, and it also has to produce a profit. So Professor Greenwald looks at cost of capital very carefully. Secondly, he believes that future growth must come from some sustainable competitive advantage. My third criteria at the beginning of this podcast, such as size, brand, distribution channels, some aspect of their business that, that causes people to return and support the profit margins. In Warren Buffett's language, that competitive advantage is a moat that keeps earnings growing. The final point to take away from Professor Greenwald's margin of safety analysis is that he states that initial research regarding earnings growth will center on a company's qualitative information and the numbers should be looked at secondly. In other words, trust your judgment. Do you see something that is likely to earn more money in the future than its competitors. The example that I refer to over and over again comes from Peter Lynch in his book, One Up on Wall Street, in which he describes a small company located in the Midwest named Bandag and how they dominated the tire retreading business and produced huge gains in their stock price for their shareholders. Okay, to recap the Greenwald approach in an extremely streamlined manner, The purpose of this podcast here is to show you that, one, margin of safety is not necessarily just an asset or earnings number, and two, paying attention to the details, the three categories that Greenwald outlines, you can build on this model for examining earnings and competitive advantages, just as Professor Greenwald did when he was starting out. Two models are now under your belt. The last one I'll present to you is from the Bow Post Group, based in Boston, Massachusetts, the founder being a gentleman by the name of Seth Klarman. I'm including this example here because the approach is so innovative and different from traditional value investing techniques that you will see reviewed in standard press coverage. A second reason is that it's been incredibly successful for a long period of time. The Bow Post Group's methods illustrate that how an individual looks at margin of safety is the key to owning a solid process. Most people tend to look at earnings or revenues. First, the Bowpost group is known for starting with margin of safety by expertly assessing risk in companies that often contain considerable risk. The firm seeks undervalued stocks by looking at individual companies that may be experiencing difficulty but are solid, they have a margin of safety, and they are mispriced by the market. The Baupost group's success is due to a disciplined practice of thorough risk analysis, as well as traditional asset and earnings analysis. In practical terms, that means that analysts at the Baupost group ask questions like, when investing, how thoroughly do we need to look at what could go wrong for a company and then apply statistical and practical filters that give us a clear idea of the downside probability of revenue streams and the threats in operating expense increases, both in very clear and accurate terms. And I mentioned that the, the Baupost Group was quite successful. They started with $25 million in assets in the early 1980s, and they have over $30 billion in assets today. So let's use an example here. If the Baupost Group were considering buying shares of GE, their questions to initiate their analysis might look like this What is the likelihood that GE's turbine business will not develop or languish for a couple of years, causing a loss of value to GE? Where are the sources of revenue? Where are the contracts likely to come from? Would any existing contracts be canceled? What are their margins? and what sources of funding are required for those contracts to come forth because this is a heavily capital-intensive business. Another question, does GE Renewable Energy Division have the assets to make capital investments that may not see payback revenues for a lengthy period of time? A third question, GE has stated that there will be another division of assets within GE, another spinoff, on the horizon. What will that look like? How will those assets be priced? What do we think separate revenue streams will look like? And where will the liabilities be allocated? Where are the downsides? And so on. All of these and subsequent questions will produce measurable results that can be parsed as finely and discreetly as possible. Those are sample questions that illustrate how a value investor who is focusing on margin of safety, will spend research time investigating the potential downside of an investment. An information investment firm described Baupost's risk analysis approach as follows. Risk evaluation. While this may sound like a well-known and trivial principle, in reality, sophisticated risk aversion is far from commonly practiced in the investing world. This is especially true in terms of low volatility, such as the current incredible bull market in which market participants tend to ignore the systematic risks that arise in the underlying economy," end quote. You can see that this is a very different technique than the first two, and that should provide you with some desire to look within the way you think about things to see if you can find ways to look at investments that give you an advantage. That's the point. Now to the second part of the podcast. Well, you learn by doing? So I have a problem for you. With those concepts and examples of how margin of safety works now tucked into your investing tool belt, I want you to go find some candidates, apply the three criteria that I articulated for you earlier, and see what you get for results. Create a list of candidates, then apply the margin of safety criteria to see if these candidates meet it, and then take five or 10 minutes to think about the process and note what worked for you and what didn't work for you. I will post on FIN Frameworks an example so that you have a template there, and I'll also post a blank form. The example that I will use for today's podcast is taken from Berkshire Hathaway's third quarter report for 2023. I use Berkshire Hathaway a lot simply because their financial statements are so complete and they're so thorough. So again, my criteria are assets versus liability, is there any margin of safety in the earnings, and other factors such as competitive advantage. On the assets versus liabilities, which is the Benjamin Graham net net, as reported in their third quarter report, they have $590 billion in current assets. They have 485 billion in total liabilities or 105 billion more in current assets than total liabilities or an 18% difference. Both the size of the pots of money and the 18% difference is a significant margin of safety. Then I looked at their earnings. When you look at earnings, you look at operating earnings. Forget about investment results. Berkshire's third quarter showed operating earnings up 40% from the previous year. Margin of safety due to other factors, such as competitive advantage. I looked at their income statements and read the annual report. They are incredibly diversified. To me, that's a plus. So weighting all of these factors, because maybe one's more important than the other, I gave the net-net factor a 70% weighting the earnings safety at 25%, and the diversification 5%. This is only on the margin of safety. I haven't decided to buy the stock yet. I have to look at earnings growth, but this tells me that the margin of safety is there, and it's worth considering further. What we have covered today in Podcast 33 should provide you with a sense of what margin of safety means as well as an awareness of how much your own intuition is part of assessing good investments. We've looked at examples of different approaches to determining margin of safety and developed an initial template for you to use and build on. Again, the example of Berkshire Hathaway used here and the blank template I mentioned will be posted on my website, finframeworks.com. This concludes the first in a series of podcasts regarding my perception of the hard parts of value investing the next podcast will cover my number 2 hardest task trusting your judgment in the face of conflicting information and or contradictory advice and opinions from industry experts i hope that you have found this helpful and useful if so please pass it on to a friend or associate who might also find it helpful Thank you for your time and consideration. Mike Lehan, Financial Frameworks.